This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. week's episode of Luna Lover the podcast. I'm your host Jordana Levine and today I sit down for a conversation with my beautiful friend and meditation junkie Caitlin Caddy. Mental health has had a good workout during the current global pandemic and so I wanted to chat to Caitlin about meditation and its role in soothing us during these uncertain times. If you're an avid listener of this podcast you might remember Caitlin from an episode way back in 2016 but today she is the author of an incredible new book called Heavily Meditated. And honestly, it is changing the way people think about meditation. Caitlin has also grown to be one of my closest Byron Bay pals, and I know you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I had having it with her. She is a joy to listen to, and I hope that it ignites a meditative spark deep inside of you. If you enjoy this interview, please share it with your friends on your Instagram stories and tag me at Jordana Levine and Caitlin at Caitlin Caddy. Where I would love to start, just because I think it's really pervy and interesting, <laughs> can you tell me how you are spending time in ISO? Oh, well, um, I am spending time in isolation. I guess not in the way that many people are. I feel like I have like actually less time. So I'm doing the like work from home while homeschooling children and um, also try and, you know, keep in touch with friends. So I'm doing a lot of the same things, working, parenting, but also school teaching and maybe, maybe to be totally honest, looking, um, a little enviously at the people that are doing like home improvement projects and, Mm. um, (laughs) self-improvement projects who are looking for things to fill their time. Yeah. I'm kind of feeling that as well. I'm like, why, why do you have so much time on your hands? But you're right. I guess people, not everybody is working while they're at home, are they? No, I, yeah, I mean, there's, well, I think it's so great to acknowledge that because I think there are so many different variations of this experience from, you know, the people who are on the front lines who are being, you know, traumatized daily to the people like us who are in a position of privilege where we can stay at home. 
Um, and then within that realm, there are all of these other little experiences, microcosms of experience from people who are still working from home, people who are working from home and homeschooling, people who are not working. Um, so there's, it's really interesting because you can't really generalize no, the experience. Absolutely not. How, just so everybody knows, how many children are there roaming around your house? Three. Three. Yes. Yesterday I put the baby down for a nap and went upstairs for a minute and came down and she had crawled out no. of her crib and I found her out on the back porch skateboarding. She's two and a what? half. And I'm like, oh man, it is mutiny on the bounty. Like, the- <laughs> <laughs> Is that the first time she's crawled out of the crib? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Like that. And after New party I mean, trick. I know. The kids, the big kids taught her how to do it, but she's never actually done it as an act of revolution. Oh my God, I love it. (laughs) It's getting crazy in here. She's like, get me out of here. I've got the skateboard. I'm gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, she's, I think she's just like, you know, like kids always do. They're just expressing what all of us are feeling, which is like, I need, I need to break out of here, man. This is like a prison and I'm going to break out of my little baby prison, my cot and um, go have a little roam and wander, which is, I think what most people who are at home want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I've often thought about it as an adult. This might be a really strange thing to say. I might instantly regret it once I've said it, but I, when I'm in bed, like I love, I always have to have something on top of me. And Mm -hmm. I like to feel the walls around me, you know, and I've Mm. often thought, I think I'd really like to sleep in a crib like bed. I think I'd feel really safe. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, like an adult crib. (laughs) We can just build you a little like a cubby house. Yes. But really, or like a like a tent. Like I would sleep in those like um you know, like little um, fold-out tents. Yeah, yeah, those pop tents. I would yeah. love that. I, I think there's something to that, sis. Like Thank there's you. a coziness <laughs> there. I think you're yeah. onto something, you know. Maybe like adult cribs could be the next hot thing. <laughs> I, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> um, all right, Caitlin, we're here to talk about um, your new book, Heavily Meditated, um, and meditation in general because I think that Now is the time, if you have ever contemplated meditation, perhaps you've dabbled in it before and thought, oh, meditation is not for me. Now is the time, not only do we need it more than ever, but people are thinking, well, I have a little bit of extra time on my hands. Maybe I'll Mm. give meditation a go. So I'm so thankful that you have made the time to talk to me. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Where is the best place, do you think, for people to start out with a meditation practice? I think the best place to start is wherever you are. Yeah. And what I mean by that is rather than coming to the meditation party with some kind of preconceived idea about what the right way to do it is, just meet yourself where you are and start with something that feels achievable and realistic in your life. Um, And so a lot of what I see is this sort of like self-improvement perfectionism. You know, a lot of us carry that into our, um, that attitude of perfectionism into our self-care and our self-improvement endeavors and meditation is no exception. So I see a lot of people who feel like if I can't do a twice daily, 20 minute practice, which Mm -hmm. is what is often prescribed by certain 
um, sort of schools, then it's not worth doing at all. Absolutely. And I think, yeah. And I think that that's just, you know, that serves no one. You doing nothing serves no one. So I think it's really great to be realistic about sort of how much time you can realistically commit um, and and really adopt that maximum of done is better than perfect. Mm. What does your personal meditation practice look like as the mother of three children? <laughs> Well, I, I do, um, a morning practice usually for about 20 minutes, but I want to put a footnote on that, which is that I did not start out a 20 minute practice when I started out in meditation. Um, it's developed into that over time. Um, and then I also love to have a little mini meditation at the end of the day, just before bedtime to sort of calm my nervous system and help me transition into, rest mode. Um, but as far as what does it look like being a mom, it looks like sometimes, um, having someone sitting in my lap, sometimes having someone prying my eyelids open, um, (laughs) or whispering sweet nothings about pancakes in my ear. Um, you know, and that's, that's where that whole idea of done is better than perfect really comes in handy because as a mother or just as a human being, like there's always going to be reasons that we can label our practice as not being good enough or not being perfect or not being right. And so um, some days I do get to be on my own because I have a really great parenting partner, my husband, and we, you know, the family just knows that like, that's part of our morning rhythm is that I do my meditation. Um, So a lot of times he'll take the kids down and get breakfast started and that kind of thing while I do it. But yeah, I think just in some ways, um, you know, motherhood is like the perfect way to really test that theory and push yourself to really deeply accept that just getting it done is better than, you know, not doing it at all. I think for most people who I hear are making excuses for why they can't meditate, you know, there's, there's so many reasons for it. I think kids is, is pretty high on the list. Mm. And, um, what would be your recommendations for people who are perhaps at home who do have kids and, and perhaps their partner goes to work early in the morning mm-hmm. or they're, they're on their own? Because I feel like that's probably the most common excuse that I hear come up time and time again. And I can't, I can't relate to it because I'm here all on my mm. own and I can meditate the whole goddamn day if I like. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So what would, what would be your advice with that? Well, I think that um, it depends on the age of the kids, right? Like when kids reach a certain age, you can either really invite them into the practice um, and let them know. So all of my kids know that this is something that I do and they all have varying levels of respect for it. Mm -hmm. I think the respect varies based on how old they are. So like my seven-year-old, he really gets it and he he doesn't mess with me really when I'm meditating. Um, my five-year-old, she's pretty respectful too. Um, and the baby, she's two and a half. So it's still sort of like, she, she's the one that tends to pry my eyelids open. So I think (laughs) if your kids are over a certain age and you explain it to them and set boundaries, um, they can, they can, they can understand that, especially if it's something that they see you doing regularly, they understand it's just part of your rhythm and respect that. Um, but I also think it's really beautiful to model that for them, for them to see you 
meditating and for them to understand why you're doing it. Um, it's beautiful behavior of, you know, to model for them of this sort of self care. If your babies are littler, you know, a nap time, um, is a good time to, to try and do that. Or even if you do have a parenting partner and when they get home from work, um, you know, just, I think communicating and negotiating with people in your life, um, so that they can support you in the practice and for them to sort of, for you to explain why you want to do it, when you want to do it and kind of come with a plan and a proposal and just build it in. Um, but I found that for me, if I didn't communicate about it, you know, you get that like really disgruntled, low level sort of angst at your partner because you're like, why can't you fucking read my mind? You know, like, (laughs) can't you see that I want to have a meditation practice? It's like when we can actually just communicate and say, this is what I want to do. Can you help me? Yeah. It's amazing how supportive people will be when you actually just communicate what your goals are. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned um, the why. I would love to talk about some of the whys behind meditation. Like Mm. why, why should we do it? Why is it so important? Well, I think there's plenty of really great reasons that you can Google um, in terms of the evidence, the way, the the way, just Google it, it. just Google it. Um, But you know, I mean, there's amazing evidence showing the way that it can change our brain, the way that it can, um, you know, create positive feelings through the release of hormones in our, in our brain. And um, there's so much evidence, right? But I think what's more important than that, those are all great things to know, but what's more important than that is to under uncover a personal reason why. Mm -hmm. So for me, like, you know, my backstory, but in a nutshell, um, I had chronic Lyme disease for 10 years and I was a total overachiever, perfectionist, burnt out, suffering from adrenal fatigue Um, I had a history of disordered eating and depression and that kind of thing. So I came to meditation as a way of trying to heal myself from Lyme disease. So I'd really tried everything else to um, try and overcome this 10-year battle. And what I realized was that it was really making a mental shift was the last piece of, of my healing puzzle. So that meant sort of slowing down um, and learning how to be, which was really, really hard for me to do. And meditation, I intuitively understood that meditation was the thing that was going to help me do that. Um, and so for me, my why originally was, I don't want to be sick for the rest of my life. And, you know, from that time I did, I healed from Lyme disease. There's not a trace of Lyme disease in my blood now. And I really credit that getting over the line, um, you know, was, was having a regular meditation practice. Um, and then beyond that, you know, a whole other sort of field of whys have, have popped up, right? Like as I became a mother, there's three really great reasons to meditate that I want to be as patient and present and sort of conscious as a parent as I can be. Um, but also, you know, creativity, like that shit is off the chain. When you start meditating, just you open up all of this space for downloads and inspiration to come Mm -hmm. through. You know, there's so many, there's so many other sort of benefits that show up when you show up regularly. And those all become their own whys. Yeah. And I get, and I, yeah, it becomes a personal why as well, I guess, once you start to figure out how you're benefiting from the practice. Yeah. And I mean, you can kind of, you can reverse engineer it, right? Like you can look at like, what is not working in my life? And like, what is something that I 
feel like meditation could help me with, whether it's, you know, a, some, a benefit that you've, that you've sort of seen on the Goog or something that you intuitively feel when you identify like what's not working in your life um, and how meditation can help solve that problem or how you think it might help solve that problem. Mm. It's a really, really powerful way to start because if you have sort of like a wishy-washy reason for doing something, you're not going to do it. Um, but when you have a really clear personal reason and when it's related to a pain point in your life, so something that's really not working or holding you back, then it's easy to show up regularly because the motivation is just baked in. So the big question is, how do we meditate? Oh, well, there's so many <laughs> In 10 words, ways. Caitlin. In 10 oh, words, how do oh, we meditate? Dear, no, no, no. Dear. I don't know if I've ever in my life answered a question in less than 10 <laughs> words. Chatty Kathy. Can talk. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, it gives me anxiety thinking about the day that I do do a TED Talk because I'm like, there's so little time. And, and so you know, they have time. the 18 minute clock like ticking down in front of you. I know. I know. That would stress me out too. I know. Although I do feel like um, time passes differently when you're in the zone, doesn't it? So maybe that's part of it. But so how to do it? There's a lot of different ways to come to meditation, to, to meditate. There's a lot of different techniques or focal points that you can use. And so in the book, rather than prescribing one particular technique, um, I wanted to present a variety of options because I think that if you try one particular technique and it just doesn't stick or it doesn't resonate or it doesn't feel easy to you, then you throw the whole meditation baby out with the bathwater mm -hmm. and go, it's just not for me. I didn't, I didn't get that. Um, so it's just all of it is not for me. So I grouped things into five different categories and I call them gateway gateway techniques or gateway meditation. So it's kind of like finding the thing that's going to, you know, how people talk about like gateway drugs or like bacon being the gateway meat for vegetarians that like, <laughs> is that what they say? <laughs> bacon is definitely the gateway meat. Um, <laughs> this is meditation. I like to approach meditation with the same philosophy of like, find something that's like going to get you hooked. And then you can always circle back to these other techniques and try them. But, um, the idea is just that you're bringing your attention back to the focal point over and over and over again. And it's what meditation teacher Sally Kempton calls a meditation sit up. So bringing your attention back to the focal point is the whole point of meditation. Yeah. So, um, and then as far as what are the focal points? So I've grouped them into, um, sound, sensation, visualization, mantra, and breath. That's not a complete overview of every technique known to man, but it's a really solid starting place. And some techniques will actually combine more than one of those different focal points. So what I recommend is um, experimenting with those different techniques and seeing which one feels easeful. So for example, if you're a really visual person, if you or an artist, or if you notice that when you're learning something, you know, you, you remember the visual aspect of it rather than maybe hearing something. Um, visualization is a great place for you to start because it's just going to, you're going to get into that slipstream so much more easily. Um, same thing with sound or sensation in the body. If you're really have a strong connection to your body sensation is a great place to start that kind of thing. So it's really, it's fun to start out and experiment with a few different techniques. And then once you find one that you feel like 
there's some there's some kind of chemistry happening with, then commit to it for 30 days, 40 days, and see what happens as you commit to the practice over time. Yeah, I love that. And I think the thing is, like, I know for me, I've changed my um, process several times. Like, I used to only do um, Vedic meditation, which is mm-hmm. using a mantra. And mm-hmm. then it's just kind of, I just wasn't feeling it anymore. And mm. then, uh, like, I'm at a stage at, at the moment where I've got so much going on that all I can handle is yoga nidra or a guided meditation. Mm. You know, otherwise mm. I find my thoughts are just going everywhere. So I guess it's like what serves you at the time and it's okay to switch it up a bit. Totally. I think it's about finding that balance between committing and getting to experience the depths of a practice that you've committed to over time. So if, like for you, if you did Vedic meditation for a period of time, like your experience of it would have changed over time. So there's real value in committing to a particular technique, mm. no doubt. But at the same time, it's important to be fluid and to be intuitive and to also, yeah, be willing to sort of like change and expand your practice over time. Yeah. Can we talk about um, the act of sitting? Mm-hmm. I know you, you speak a lot about getting sit done. I love that. Um, mm. I find sitting so uncomfortable in meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's, what's the importance of actually sitting up? right when you when you're meditating well I think it's really I think maybe I can start with the importance and then I can give some suggestions I'm sure you're already on to them but for other people um just in terms of how to make it more comfortable but when we're sitting the goal is to have an upright alert posture so if you're laying down that is a posture more of sort of surrender and relaxation and if you're unwell or you have an injury that prevents you from sitting, that's fine, then you should lay down. But in general, for most people, sitting up is really ideal because it's a it's a posture of sort of alertness and awareness. Um, so I think it's ideal to sit in that in that position. And as my teacher Yoga Rupa Rod Stryker says, the straighter the spine, the clearer the mind. So um, when you think about sort of a slouched posture um, where your spine is crumpled, you know, if we want to talk about it from sort of a bioenergetic perspective, the energy can't move freely, you know, up and down your spine into your into your brain um, as well when you have sort of a crumpled posture. And if you think about just that in general in life, like posture is such a great thing to be aware of, you know, what kind of posture are you bringing to whatever task it is that you're, that you're doing, whether it's meditating or, or writing or doing work at your computer, cooking dinner, like what's notice the posture and notice the way that it changes your energy when your posture changes. Um, And then in terms of like how to make it more comfortable. So how do we sit comfortably Um, sitting straight up on the floor, like in a cross-legged position, which is something that is sort of the, I don't know, the quintessential um, look is actually really uncomfortable. (laughs) So please get a cushion under that tush and you'll feel so much more comfortable. So when you see little meditation cushions, I often see people like trying to sit on top of that, like perch on top of them. What's what's more comfortable is if you just sort of prop your sits bones or your or your tush like right on the edge of the cushion so that your knees are actually slightly lower than your hips. So what that's going to do is just create more space in your spine and not compress it so that you're not 
sort of feel you you will slouch over time if you sit straight on the floor like that so that is such a simple little trick but it's so much more comfortable and you'll find that you can sit a lot longer um, when you just give your hips a little support so if you don't have like a meditation cushion that's fine Um, like if you want a really firm cushion or you can fold up a blanket Um, and for me I like to have I think an inch is still so I like to have about four a four inch support under my um, under my hips and you can just experiment depending on your height and see what what feels most comfortable Um, if you don't like sitting cross-legged at all if it's just uncomfortable for your knees sitting in a chair is totally fine as well Um, you just want to make sure that your feet are flat on the floor and that your spine is upright so you don't want to sort of like chillax in a lazy boy and um, kick your feet up. You want to still have that really (laughs) upright, alert posture. Um, That being said, I find it whatever posture you choose, if you do it sort of in the same place, in the same way, it's easier to drop into meditation when your body has that familiarity. So my body, when I sit on my cushion in in sort of a cross-legged position with my hips up, spine straight, my body's like, oh, hey, my mind goes, okay, yeah, we know, we, we know what we're doing now. And we just, you just drop in. Um, so it's really nice to be able to set up a little space for yourself to, to be able to do that and to create that consistency. Do you do anything else in that space to create ritual around your practice? Yeah, I love um, sitting in the same place with a little, I have a few little things that I like to keep in, in that space. So I have like mists. Um, I don't know if you've tried the Shimana clearing mist or the heart mist, but those are two of my favorites. So that's such a lovely thing to do right before a practice, just to sort of get your senses involved. Um, essential oils can be really nice to add in Palo Santo or sage just to sort of clear the space and, and bring a level of reverence is super, super lovely and kind of creates this, um, I don't know, just a really beautiful ritual for yourself. I also have like gongs and chimes and um, things like little toys like that. And then a journal is something that I always keep nearby um, because I like to, I like to do a little gratitude ritual at the end of my practice. Sorry, I'm just moving because someone's decided to cook lunch. Um, (laughs) I love to do a gratitude. I hope that lunch is for you. I hope so too. Fingers (laughs) crossed. Um, Yeah. So a gratitude practice. I, so I have a little journal that I keep by. I set an intention for the day and then um, I write down three things that I'm grateful for from the last 24 hours. So that's always there. And then I often get, you know, downloads, ideas, insights that I like to, to scribble into the journal. Um, and then the last thing that I like to have nearby is just something inspiring to read, um, like a poem or a little piece of prose, even if it's just a page that I read. It's such a nice little addition um, on the days where you have a little extra time to read something inspiring that can help kind of just set the tone for your day. Mm, I love that. Do you ever get do you ever get a download mid medi and want to come out of the meditation to write it down in fear that you're gonna forget it? She says totally. from personal experience. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> Hypothetically. 
um oh god yeah all the time yeah and so what do time. you do do you come do you come out of meditation to write it down no no oh. I don't okay. do you yes because I'm yeah. terrified I'm gonna forget yeah. it yeah um no I don't I wonder why why I guess well, because, because you trust that if it's a good idea yeah. it will come back to you I do I mean at the same time I do have that like that that fear like um you know, I'm sure you've read Big Magic by yes. Elizabeth Gilbert. And I lo- I just love that book. And, you know, she has this sort of concept that, like, if an idea comes to you and you don't, like, treat it right, it'll, like, leave you for another lover. Yes. And I really subscribe to that. And after reading that book, like, years ago, I became really quite religious about sort of writing ideas down and doing something about them as soon as possible. And... Um, so I, I totally subscribe to that, but I guess I just do have a trust that, that it's going to be there. Um, and that's the beauty of having, um, a journal sitting right there. I don't know. It'd be interesting to experiment and see, like, if you just let it, let it roll and keep meditating. And then when you come out, as soon as you come out, write things down, would, would it still be there? It would be a I don't know if you feel like you could potentially sacrifice an idea at the altar of experiment. Oh my um, lord! I think I think for me it's like if I the reason I the reason I come out to write it down is because I don't want to be distracted by it for the rest of the meditation. Yeah, but I yeah, guess the key yeah. is to let it go with the faith that it will come back if it's meant to. Yeah, and I think that a lot of times for me the. Um, the idea is like, it's sort of like infused into the meditation a lot of times. Like it's mm. like a lot of times in some ways it's related to the sort of state that I'm experiencing in meditation. Um, and so it becomes like a cellular imprint in a way or a yes. lesson, you yeah. know, like a lesson that's relevant to sort of what, my meditation experience was that day or I don't know, but yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I guess to me, um, I just have a level of trust that it's going to be there. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to do that this week. I'll let you know if I forget all the ideas, it's your fault. Do you know what? (laughs) The other thing to take into consideration is that like, I'm probably like half brain dead because I've had three children and like, they've eaten all my brain cells. So I'm so used to forgetting things now that (laughs) like, (laughs) I'm probably just like less attached to my, to my ideas and thoughts than, than I was before kids, because I'm just used to like, you know, being vague. I don't think that is the case at all, but thank you for making me feel better. <laughs> um, Caitlin, what are some myths that people kind of attach to meditation that just aren't true? I mean, you must have heard some of them. Oh, yes. I love talking about the myths of meditation. Well, I mean, the first one is that um, that, that there's this idea of, you know, being a good meditator. Um, and that you need to have like a certain set of qualities that you're born with that make you a good meditator. Yeah, yeah. Or, or I, I guess people are saying, cause I've heard it a million times. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm just not good at meditation. Like, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. And my answer to that is like, you're not special in that way, friend. Sorry. You know, (laughs) no one is good at meditation. Like that's sort of the whole point. Right. And so when we can acknowledge that our brain is designed to be hypervigilant, like that's literally its job. And when you stop sort of identifying that as a flaw and go, actually, my brain is like doing this amazing job of sort of trying to keep me safe. And that's really like, in in large part, like how we've evolved as humans is this sense of hypervigilance. But we also need to balance that. And so in meditation, when we come up against a busy mind, you know, it's normal. And so just acknowledging that having a quiet mind is not a prerequisite for meditation. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's quite the opposite. You know, it's, it is, it is an inherent prerequisite that you be human to meditate and all humans have busy minds. It's just the nature of the beast. (laughs) Yeah. You're not special. You're not special. Um, so I think that that's a really, that's one of the most common ones. It's just that I am, I'm not good at it. My mind is busy. Um, and I think the busier the mind, the more sit-ups you get to do, right? Like the more meditation sit-ups where you just bring your attention back over and over and over again. And it's really a muscle that you, that you flex. Um, so that's a common one. I think another one is, um, especially this was true for me was I was afraid it was going to like dull my shine. Like I was afraid it was going to like take away my edge. Um, because I was such a, like, I was such a hustler. I was such a sort of like overachiever and totally type A. Oh, you just did not want to zen out at all. No, yeah. no, it sounded terrible to me because I was like, well, then <laughs> that then I'm going to like end up living in a cardboard box, like living in a moo with 33 cats. Like this is just, it's going to spiral <laughs> out of control really fast. Now I just have 33 children. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> same, same. Um, but yeah, I think that this idea that it's going to like take away our edge, um, and that this hustle mentality and this like sense of being in fight or flight or this overdrive all the time is an advantage is just fundamentally not true. Um, and we have to, there's a level of trust, right. That we have to bring to it when we're, when we're willing to say, I'm willing to trust that when I sort of take my foot off the gas for a little while, that I'm still going to be excellent and the results are going to be excellent. Um, but that takes, that takes, that takes a level of trust. I think, does that resonate at all? Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. I just think it's really common, especially for people of our generation and particularly, um, for me being American, you know, that hustle mentality is something that people really champion and I've become like anti-hustle. Mm, oh totally I mean yeah we, I'm sure we've spoken about it before but I I find the more I can slow down and the less that I do the more I actually achieve and that mm-hmm. I wish I knew that in my 20s oh yeah it's yeah. it's it's a game changer and I think the quality of the work that you create um is just you know it's just so much higher But I think it also, it's a great time to just sort of mention, like, what does that, like, what does this all mean? And to circle back to like how I healed from Lyme disease or how I credit meditation for helping with that, which is related to this sort of hustle mentality is just the effect that it can have on the nervous system. Mm. Um, So, you know, breathing in particular ways can directly impact the nervous system. So the nervous system has two branches one is the parasympathetic and one is the sympathetic and the sympathetic is the fight flight freeze 
response and the um, parasympathetic is the rest, digest, repair, reproduce. And I think it's really critical to acknowledge the connection there because when I look around, um, I see a lot of people who have issues around resting, digesting, repairing, and reproducing. Mm. And I think in large part, it's because we're stuck in this like hustler, hustler, hustler mentality of that's really driven by the sympathetic nervous system of the fight or flight. So we're really, we're coming to the table, spending a lot of time in that fight or flight mode, um, which is burning us out. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm there right now, sister. I feel you. Um, what about, what about people who say, I can't stop thinking? Yeah, that's normal. Again, it's so normal. And I think that, um, you know, again, like that's what your, your mind is designed to do. And it's less about not thinking and more about the practice of meditation. It's not a performance, it's a practice. And what we're doing is practicing bringing our attention back to the focal point over and over again. So if, if you do that 10 times, if you do that a thousand times, that's the whole point. And mm. it's so fine to have a mind that's thinking. It's just really about the practice. Mm. Um, but also it's about acknowledging those spaces in between the thoughts because they do happen when you're, when you're focusing your attention. And even if they're small, it, they're really delightful. Like it's really, really nourishing and delightful to have to, to bring your attention to the space between the thought, even if it's momentary. Mm, beautiful. And I guess it's, yeah, it's, it's less about not having the thought and more about not attaching to the thought, which is what I tend to do. Absolutely. And, and I think that's quite common, right? Like you attach to it and then you go off on this tangent and before you know it, you've got no idea where your focal point is anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's this, I love the analogy of, you know, clouds and the sky. And so if, if, if we can understand that we're the sky and we're not the clouds Mm -hmm. and that the clouds are just moving through this landscape, um, that's, that's an amazing shift to make. And it's, it doesn't just apply to our thoughts, but it applies to our sort of emotional experiences as well. Because when we hook onto a particular cloud, like a sad feeling or a sad thought or, um, a challenging cloud or thought or feeling, we become identified with it. And that's really dangerous because we can feel stuck inside of that feeling and feel powerless. And when we can kind of step back and observe that we are really just this landscape that these, that these feelings and thoughts and experiences are, are floating through, we understand that we're not our circumstances, we're not our thoughts. And it it's so freeing, right? Because you start to understand that um, things, it's this idea, it sounds so cliche, but it's like everything changes and then changes again. And it's, it's really liberating when you can start to embody that. And that's what we're practicing in meditation. But when you bring it into life off of the cushion, it's amazing what happens when you sort of realize where you're attaching to experiences. I mean, even with this coronavirus, you know, it's anxiety producing for a lot of people, mm. myself included. And this practice of understanding that it's a circumstance that's happening. It's a cloud. It's a big ass, dark motherfucking cloud that's passing through. Yes, but it's a cloud and it's mm. not the sky. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's temporary in nature. Yeah, I love that. And I think what's been really interesting during this pandemic is 
that people I think people have underestimated the impact that it has had on their nervous system mm. because I think we've been in it for such a long time now that we've kind of adjusted to the new normal um but our nervous systems haven't really had a, had time to adjust with us so it's like giving your nervous system that little bit of extra nourishment and I know that when all of this first went down I completely underestimated how much it was actually affecting me until I felt myself burn out a little bit and I was like, oh, I haven't done anything. I haven't been physical, you know, and it's like, no, it's that, it's that underlying stress. Yeah. And I think that it's also, um, you know, a great, it's a great thing to, to remind ourselves of like that anxiety is like, it's, it has a serious appetite, you know, it's a hungry beast and it wants you to feed it with more. Like it's always wanting more bad news and more information and more reasons to be concerned and more really like anxiety's agenda is well, and sort of that hypervigilance is in part to continue to prove its usefulness. And so we have to be really conscious about what we're choosing to let in during times like this and what we're choosing to attach and identify with. Um, so it's really great to be able to look at like how, like, am I feeding my anxiety and are there ways that I can soothe it instead? And so like a practical way you could do this is like, what do you do first thing in the morning? And for a lot of people, they reach for their phone. Mm. And when you reach for your phone and the first thing that you do is start sort of scrolling, either looking at emails or news or even social media, like you're just absolutely inundating yourself with out outside information and you don't even get a chance to sort of set the tone for your day or to be discerning about what you want to take in. So even just a simple swap of like, okay, every morning, instead of reaching for my phone to do like a little social scroll or check my email or read the news, I'm just going to do a five or seven minute guided meditation. And then once that's done, then I can shift into you know, choosing what I'm going to feed myself today. Um, but it's, you know, there's a lot of junk food that we feed ourselves like mentally and emotionally. Um, and I think if we can sort of start the day on a more solid footing, it gives us a better chance of making wiser decisions. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it, I guess it's, it's part of our well being practice and people will make time in the morning to exercise and they'll make time in their day to cook a healthy meal and, you know, mm. buy healthy groceries. And this is just another little thing to add to the well-being mix. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's so powerful because it is, it is just a way of let's mental hygiene, but it's also a way of just setting the tone for your day, you know? And I think when I think about starting my day with a piece of cake for breakfast, which like, look, there's a time and a place for that. <laughs> but if you did that sort of regularly, you would feel like every day would just be this sort of like, oh, well, I had cake for breakfast, so fuck it. And I think it's the same when we feed ourselves something that's not nourishing mentally first thing in the morning, we become less, far less discerning about what we feed ourselves the rest of the day. So true. So, yeah, so, so true. Um, all right, Caitlin, if people want to find out a little bit more about you, where is the place that they go? They can find me on my digital digs at CaitlinCady.com. <laughs> so that's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-C-A-D-Y. 
Um, and then also same, that's my handle on the gram. Um, and <laughs> you are so gangster the way you oh talk my about God. things. <laughs> my American slang. Um, and you can also find guided meditations with me on insight timer alongside yours, George. So people can have a little smorgasbord of your meditations and <laughs> of my two meditations. Of the most glorious women in Byron Yes. yes. <laughs> if we may say so ourselves. And your beautiful book, Heavily Meditated, is in stores everywhere now. It is in stores um, all throughout Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and then it's coming to the UK and the US. Um, in early August. Beautiful. Uh, or people can order it online if they can't. Yeah, you can order it online, store. or even like a lot of local bookstores are um, are delivering locally. So I really encourage people to support their local bookstores, like ours here in Byron. They're doing same day delivery, which is amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's so cool. So awesome. Yes. Well, thank you so much. So nice thank to chat in a me. recorded manner and not Always. just on the phone. Love it. Love it. So much fun. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode with my dear friend, Caitlin Caddy. I cannot recommend Caitlin's book enough, and not just because she's my friend. It is so eloquently written. The photography in it is just stunning. And the design itself, it's something that you definitely want to be keeping on the coffee table. Buy it for your friends, buy it for yourself. It is the most stunning book on meditation you will ever find. It's called Heavily Meditated and it's in all good bookstores now. Have you signed up to become a Lunar Lover member yet? Your monthly Lunar Lover membership now includes weekly yin yoga classes, two online moon circles, journal prompts on the new moon and the full moon, and a guided meditation each month narrated by yours truly, all for only $22 a month, and you can cancel at any time. To become a Lunar Lover member, all you need to do is click the link in the show notes of this episode or head to jordanalevine.com forward slash Luna Lover. Until next moon, I'm Jordana Levine and you've been listening to Luna Lover, the podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.